0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 10. By the way, it is the book of Revelation, not Revelations. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Most people say, I want to study the revelations. Well, study the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of revelations in the book of Revelation. So, uh, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the revealing, the manifestation in various ways. And many of those ways are in, the, in this book. Ways of judgment that uh, will happen during the tribulation period. <clears throat> we got to the 10th chapter. Let's look at the 10th chapter of this book. And we'll find in the first verse. Let me just give you a brief outline or division. It's very simple to divide. The first verse is the mighty angel. And then... Verses 2 through 4, there's a little book or a little scroll. Verses 2 through 4. In verses 5 through 7, the Lord and His oath. In verses 8 through 11, you have the little book eaten or digested. Some say that means it was read, but it was received as far as John is concerned. And we'll find what that means as we go along. Now then, let's look at the first verse. It says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as, were, as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had, let's read verse two as, uh, verses 2 and 3 as well. And he had in his hand a little book. <clears throat> and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot... upon on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roared, and when he cried, had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now we find this mighty angel, and it's most likely to be the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, because all the symbolism here points to Christ. If you look back in the first chapter, we have uh, many things that uh, we find here. He's clothed with a cloud, a rainbow is upon his head, his face is where the sun, his feet as pillars of fire. And verse 3, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. All of these things are symbolical of Christ. This uh, strong angel clothed with a cloud means it's it's symbolical of divine mystery and majesty. A rainbow encircled his head. This is... Indicating mercy and confirmation of God's covenant to Israel. Remember we said the rainbow is symbolical of covenant relationship. God set a bow in the, in the sky in his covenant with Noah. And we know he made a covenant with his people of old, with Israel. And so he is confirming his mercy in his covenant, uh, with Israel. And then his face, like the sun, is a sign of supreme authority. Remember we gave you in our last lessons that uh, the sun speaks of authority. And so here is it; he is manifesting supreme authority. And then his feet, like columns of fire. This is symbolical of treading in judgment. We find that in the first chapter as well where it says, His feet are like fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. That's chapter 1, verse 15. Almost all of these symbols you'll find in the first chapter, and then in the fourth and fifth chapter of the book of Revelation concerning Christ. This small scroll that he had in his hand is a book of prophecy pertaining to the last days. We're going to see that as we unravel the thoughts here and study this chapter. That it is a book of prophecy. You know, there was a large scroll, the seven sealed scroll, the seven sealed book that was given in the fifth chapter, but here is a small scroll. It has, it's pertaining to the very last days of the tribulation period. Then you find his right feet, his right foot is set upon the, the sea. By the way, the sea would sim, is symbolical of nations. So he set His right foot upon the nations and His left foot on the earth. And this is to claim His inheritance. He claims the nations and the earth itself as His inheritance. You can read that in the Psalms where He shows that His inheritance is claimed. And then He uttered a a loud shout as a roaring lion. Look at it, if you will, in verse 3. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. We know in chapter 5, let me read a verse for you. It says that uh, in in chapter 5, verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Christ is seen in chapter 5, verse 5, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here he shouts or utters a loud voice or shout as a roaring lion asserting himself in behalf of Israel and in behalf of the uh, lion with power and authority to do what he will do for Israel. We know that the nation of Israel comes into view in the next chapter very specifically because we find that the temple worship is the altar and the worship is spoken of and the temple is spoken of and Jerusalem is spoken of. In chapter 11, verse 1, we'll begin to deal with that. So, uh, the nation of Israel is in view. Now, let's look at this in detail. Let's read it again and look at it. And I saw a mighty angel come down from heaven. This is chapter 10, verse 1. Clothed with a cloud uh, and a rainbow upon his head. And his face was were the sun. He comes from heaven. His feet as pillars of fire. He came down from heaven. And he comes from heaven and he's clothed with majesty. He shows in putting his feet upon the sea and upon the earth an act of possession. That this belongs to me. He's robed also with grace and with glory. And it says in verse 2, he had in his hand a little book, open. Notice it's open. The other book was sealed. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. And cried with a loud voice as when the lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, we find that this little book that's spoken of is a book of unfulfilled prophecies. And these thunders are judgments that are about to take place. Seven thunders uttered their voices. You Remember when, when we spoke of lightnings and thunders, symbolical of judgments coming upon the earth? And this is true as you carry it through of the book of Revelation. And we find that uh, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, In verse 4, I was about to write, John says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. It's not time to reveal what these judgments are going to be. And he said to seal them up. And the angel which I saw, verse 5, stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven. Now here's the, the Lord and his oath. And what does he say? And he swore by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which therein are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now then, time no longer does not mean that time ceases to be because we know that as you continue through the book of revelation that time time goes on but it means no longer delay in time of these judgments that the judgments are about to come that there will be no longer delay in bringing them about it doesn't mean that there'll be no more time time continues on time continues on even throughout eternity Time continues on even throughout. People have misunderstood this, that there should be time no longer. Uh, it means there will be no longer delay in the exercise or in the bringing about of these judgments that are about to be spoken of. So we know that there's when we speak of time, we know the tribulation as we're going to speak of time definitely in the next chapter where it says there will be Three and a half years, more great tribulation. Well, three and a half years is a register's time, doesn't it? By the way, let me say something about time at this point in, at this point in time. <laughs> and I hate to be repetitious. But you know, people have gotten all uptight about this year 2000. Now, I know we're going to have problems because we know that there's a date of time that the computers do not recognize in all the confusion that may come y two k problem and i don 't deny that at all, but what if, what if we were to say that <clears throat> as far as <clears throat> excuse me as far as the mystical or the uh, suspicious idea that the year two thousand itself uh, carries with it the special uh, a uh, hidden mystery of Christ's coming, as many profess that it does. What, what if we were to say that this is really about the year 2004 or five already? Does that dawn on everybody? Because all, almost all historians and Bible scholars believe that Jesus was born, as far as the calendar is concerned, about B.C., 4 to 6 B.C., so if you were to recognize, if you would recognize the actual time from Christ's birth and the coming of Christ, AD means uh, at, at his coming his appearing first at, at his birth. So uh, if you were to recognize the real fact of the matter, we're already about in the year two thousand four or five BC uh, AD. It's already passed. The year 2000 is gone. If you really want to recognize Christ as the beginning of that time. We know the calendar doesn't say so. But I'm trying to remove all suspicion and mysterious ideas that the year 2000 carries with it some special uh, idea that that's definitely the time that Christ is going to come. As people have calculated in times past. So don't put too much stock in that. In fact, we don't even know uh, but most of the, uh, we don't even know the time, I should finish my statement, of Christ's birth uh, from 4 to 6 BC is ordinarily the time that is uh, is uh, believed by almost all historians and Bible, even Bible scholars. And you can check that out in Bible encyclopedias or, or history books or whatever. You can go to the biggest world history book you can find and it will say that one someone said well how could Christ be seen before Christ how could he be born before Christ well the calendar situation is what's confused that not Christ's birth Christ's birth everything since uh there was nothing before Christ that uh, of course it was all BC, before Christ but the change of calendars and all is called caused all of this confusion so i just wanted to to make it uh uh sure that you recognize that there's no mystical number about the year 2000. As a lot of people try to put the stock in it. And therefore believe that since we've had 4,000 years before Christ and 2,000 years, and then the other 1,000 years starts at the year 2000, that that has to be the time of Christ coming. So that would be the the seventh thousand years. And so we, we don't go with that because we don't know that Day or the hour. Maybe the Lord hid that time from us exactly so that we wouldn't be uh, trying to set dates and, and you know worry about it. Maybe it is kind of... We really don't know. No one really knows the exact date of the birth of Christ. As far as our calendar is concerned. So, let's go on with this. I just thought that would throw that in. It says in verse 6, that time, that there should be time no longer. Now then, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. Now there's another angel that sounds, and when he sounds, in that day, the mystery of God will be finished because there's a completion of all the things that will take place after the sounding of the seventh angel when he, uh, sounds. Utters his trumpet sound. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, by the way, you'll find that in chapter 11, verse 15. It says, "And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, "And notice the, the, what it actually says, when it, 11:15, if you're looking at it, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever, anticipating the fulfillment of all." That's why this verse is specific and says that that's what it anticipates. Chapter 10, verse 7. It says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And you have the idea of that in 11, verse 15. Now then, in verse 8, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. Now John was told to go and take that little book. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, digest it, would be one thought, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. This little book is sweet and it's bitter. You might say it's sweet in its promises of blessings, especially for Israel that God will protect them throughout the remainder of that tribulation period. But it is bitter in its prediction of the sufferings and the judgments that will come. Some things have a sweet side and a bitter side. The Word of God is like that. The Word of God is uh, it, this little book may be symbolical of the Word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It has two, uh, two, cutting edges on it. God's Word does that, and there's a twofold effect of the Gospel of Christ as well. Let me read for you in the Book of Second Corinthians, Chapter Two. Paul uses these words in verse fifteen. He says. For we are unto God a sweet savor, sweet savor of Christ—not savior, but savor, of incense, a sweet smell. For we unto God are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life. Unto life. Now the word of God, when it's preached, it has two a twofold effect and twofold result. If it's received as sweet, and it is a it becomes a salvation or savior, and this was the gospel is the savor or the sweet incense that goes up to God in the preaching of it, but it it carries with it salvation for those who believe, but it carries with it. Bitterness, or it has an opposite side, to those who reject it. It says, he that believeth is not condemned. But he that believeth not is what? Condemned already. Because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The word when it's preached goes out in such a fashion as that people receive it or reject it. Even everything that's, that is taught and preached from the Word of God. Now, it doesn't mean that everything that the preacher says is divinely inspired. Certainly not. But this book is divinely inspired. And we are to take it and rightly divide the Word of Truth. But when God uh, opens this to your thoughts and heart, and you receive God's Word, you either receive His Word or you reject His Word. But uh, as I say, there are many frailties behind the pulpit and among in, in the, the person and the preacher himself because we are all uh, human beings and we're all uh, uh, subject to uh, mistakes and, and uh, not fully understanding everything that God has to say. But what God does say, we need to accept it one way or the other. And uh, it, it comes down to His Word Sometimes we do not fully understand His Word. Many times we do not fully understand His Word. I'm saying that most of the things that we're studying here in the book of Revelation, we will never fully understand until they really happen. But, I do believe that we have a basis for our interpretation and exposition of the things that we try to preach and teach from the book of Revelation, because just like we were talking about those things about the mighty angel, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll find... Let me just read in chapter 1, and I won't try to pinpoint each point of it, but let me read John's vision of Christ Himself in chapter 1. It says in verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks... Now listen carefully at the description. One like to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot... And girt about the paths with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool. As white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like a fine brass. As if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. You find a lot of the symbolism there that we find over here in chapter 10 verse 1. So we can see that we can rightly expect that this uh, mighty angel, an angel simply means not an angel from heaven as specified so many times, but an angel is a messenger. Remember in the second, the first and second and third chapter, the angels to the seven churches or the messengers and even in that sense the pastors are the messengers to the seven churches that John was to give those messages that were directed to the seven churches so it's no wonder that we find this description of Christ as the messenger from heaven now then let's pick up with verse 9 again And I went to the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. There was something that would be sweet about it to John. And we said that would indicate the promises of the blessings. Sweet in its promises of the blessings. Remember that we mentioned earlier that Israel would be protected, divinely protected throughout the the tribulation period. In fact, in our last lesson, if you'll remember in chapter 9, verse 4, that even these demons were forbidden to hurt those men that were sealed of God. They were divinely protected. Look in verse 4 of chapter 9. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green uh, green thing, neither any tree, but only those men, now look at this, which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. So those that have the seal of God in their foreheads were divinely protected. So the message that John received here in this little book, to digest and to assimilate, to eat, was sweet in its blessings of protections and, uh, for Israel through the rest of the tribulation. But it was bitter. In the sufferings, in its predictions of sufferings that would come. And the prophecies were yet to be declared to the nation of Israel. Because we're going to see that there's more yet to be done. Look at uh, verse 10 now. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter so it had this twofold effect that we just have been talking about now verse 11 and he said unto me thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings so this little book indicated not only the sweetness and the bitterness but it indicated that there were future prophecies there were prophecies to be declared to the nation of Israel as well as to Many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now, chapter 11, we start with a different uh, passage in view. It says, And there was given unto me, given me, a reed like unto a rod. Some say that this reed was ten feet long. And the angel stood, stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar. And them that worship therein. So we have Jewish things coming into view. We have the temple, the altar, Jewish worships. The temple at Jerusalem. We know that at some point in time, prophecy indicates in the book of Daniel and other places, other prophecies in the Old Testament, that the temple, the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, And it will be rebuilt during the tribulation period. And so, evidently, we're seeing here a thought about the Jewish aspect of the tribulation. And notice it says in verse 2, But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread under... Foot forty and two months. Now here you have the time we were talking about earlier, forty two months. If you figure thirty days a month, that's twelve hundred and sixty days. That term is used time and time again. We'll find that in the book of Revelation here. Uh, in fact, verse three says a thousand two hundred and three score days. A thousand. Two hundred and threescore days. That's twelve hundred and sixty days. That's thirty uh, times the forty-two. The forty-two months and the thousand two hundred and three and days are the same. You see that forty-two months in verse two. You see the thousand two hundred and three and days in verse three. They're both equivalent. Now by the year, if you multiply... The 42 months, you would come up with 1,272 days because you have the extra days put in. But you have three and a half years really here. And if you study the book of Daniel, this is the last half of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And there's appeared an interval of time between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's prophecy that is an unknown undescribed length of time. And that, in Daniel's prophecy, is this day and age of grace in which we now live. So it's, it's undisclosed as to the length of it. That's why we do not know the day and the hour uh, of Christ's coming. is because no one can identify the length of that time that lapses between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And That's why it's so ridiculous to try to come up with a time. Yet you have people doing it. They're doing it right today. you turn on your television much and hear a lot of some of the evangelists predicting doomsday just as January 1? Most of them believe in September of this year it's going to happen because that's a special feast day of Israel. Okay, but... They're all making these predictions. We had a gentleman here visiting with us this last uh, summer. He said, Brother Joyce, I probably won't see you next year because in September we'll all be gone. I said, yeah, well, I hope, I hope I see you anyway next year when you come back. And he said, I'll be back if it doesn't happen. Well, I hope he comes back. But if Jesus comes, he could come before September. He could come before we leave this building. There's no set time. It's in the Father's own power. And it's ridiculous for a man to try to set the date of Christ's coming. Because Jesus said that this is in my Father's power. He says, no, not the Son, but the Father only. And we go back to that thought in Matthew 24 where they say, this generation shall not pass till all shall be fulfilled. And He's talking about the the fig tree, when it begins to put forth leaves. And the fig tree is symbolical of the nation of Israel. And we know that nation of Israel was declared to be a nation in 1948. And so, the, the Bible prophecy teachers take the year of 1948 and they've tried to, to figure out what a generation means. And they, remember, that's where this 1988 business came about. Forty years, right? So Jesus just had to come in 1988. But He didn't come in 1988 because they do not know what a generation is. In fact, the word generation itself many times means a race of people. Not, not relating to the time or length. We say here are three generations and we speak of it in the normal sense of the word. But sometimes the word generation means race. So Jesus was saying, and if you study Matthew chapter 24, it is entirely Jewish in background. And being so, Jesus was saying this Jewish nation, this race shall not pass till all is fulfilled. And that's why you have them still being talked about here in the book of Revelation. Which is yet future to our time because they will not pass and they're going to be, we already have studied where there were 12,000 out of all the 12 tribes of the children of Israel making 144,000 that were sealed, that were to be the ministers and were to be the missionaries during the tribulation period. And we know that even that future time that we're talking about, that they will not have passed. So this generation will not pass. They'll all be fulfilled. And then in the same passage of Scripture in Matthew 24, He says, "...in this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all nations, and then shall the end come." When shall it be preached unto all nations? During the tribulation period by the Jews themselves. Have you heard? Now, there's a lot of evangelistic movements, and you hear it on the television all the time, where they'll say, well, we've got to get the gospel around the world before Jesus comes. Well, that's true. The gospel will go around the world before Jesus comes, but we won't get it around the world before Jesus comes into the remotest parts of the world, because the Bible teaches that the rapture will happen before that gospel is preached unto all nations for witness, and that the Jews themselves will be—we would not have any converted people during the uh, in the Book of Revelation. If the gospel had already been preached to all nations, because they would already be condemned by the fact they'd reject the gospel. <clears throat> this is a very, very important and deep subject. Let's read in chapter 11, verse 2. But the cord which is without of the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. that. That's of course the, the three and a half years or it's uh, uh, 1,260 days. And verse uh, 3 says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days. That's the same equivalent as the forty-two months. And they'll be clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is symbolical of what? Sorrow and, and weeping and, and heartache. Remember that many of the Old Testament prophets Prophets were, they were clothed in sackcloth. And from time and to time, sackcloth was mentioned uh, in reference to their mourning and their sorrow. And these two, two witnesses that God will send for the, three and the last three and a half years of the tribulation period will be clothed in sackcloth because they'll have messages of judgment upon an ungodly world. And even ungodly, uh, Israel, the part of Israel that still is, will not receive uh, the Lord and the unconverted aspect or uh, people of Israel. Now then, we get into some things that we've got to study partly in the Old Testament as well as the New to uh, do a lot of identifying and, and understanding. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of of the earth. We'll come back and study some more about that. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. That's the fire of God's judgment by, as they speak God's judgment to, to uh, those that uh, they would devour. And devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power. These two witnesses have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So here you have two special witnesses. Now, of course, almost all Bible scholars uh, identify uh, Moses or Elijah as one of them, and some say Moses is the other one, and others say Enoch is the other one. And I'll give you various reasons for that. There's a lot of study we need to take into consideration here. First of all, let's look at uh, the future and see these two witnesses and think about who they are as far as Bible understanding is concerned. In Malachi 4, turn to Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. We'll try to give you some background. This is not going to be easy and it's going to be a slow Uh, progress to understand it. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. I want you to notice. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That speaks of the time we're talking about in Revelation. And he shall turn, now look, here's another aspect. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now this is the end of the Old Testament. But now look in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 14. Matthew 11, verse 14. And if you don't have time to look at these verses, be sure and jot them down. Notice Jesus says, And if you will receive it, this is Elias or Elijah, which was for to come, even in Christ's day. Now, who is he, he talking about? Let's go back and read verse 10 through 14. You have Matthew 11, verse 10. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I, I send my messenger before thy face. Another A Scripture in Isaiah as well as Malachi. It's Malachi 3, verse 1, where it says this, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now then, John the Baptist was the one that came and prepared the way before Christ. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent taketh it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, Jesus says, and if you will receive it, this is Elias or Elijah, which was for to come. So here's John the Baptist that came in the the spirit and power of Elijah. He was... Elijah-like. He was like Elijah. John the Baptist. Jesus refers to him in such a fashion. Matthew 17, verse 12. I want you to look at that. Matthew 17, verse 12. Jesus says, But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Now what did Jesus say in Matthew seventeen, eleven? But I say unto you that Elijah, or Elias, or Elijah, is come already. He's come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Now then the prophecy back there that we first read in Malachi four, verse five and six Definitely said, before that great and terrible day of the Lord come. We know that that refers to a future appearing of an Elijah-like personality. And one of these witnesses that we're studying will be like that. Now then, someone says, well, it could not be Moses along with Elijah because Moses died. And Elijah was taken up to heaven. And Hebrews 9, verse 27, you write this down too. Be sure and jot them down if you want a good study of this subject. Hebrews 9, 27 says, "...and it's appointed unto man wants to die, man wants to die, and after this is judgment." And they say, well, uh, Moses died. Elijah did not die. Now we know when we study the balance of this chapter here in Revelation 11, that these two witnesses are killed, so they die. And they say, therefore, it could not be Moses, because he would have to die a second time. So it could be Elijah. And they say, well, there's only one other person that it could be, if it's not Moses, and that could be Enoch, because he went to heaven without dying. So Enoch and Elijah are the only two persons that were ever taken to heaven without death. But that argument doesn't stand either. Because, turn to Hebrews 9, verse 27. And let's look at it and see what it actually does say. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. As it is appointed unto men once to die. Now, generally speaking, men die. But it doesn't say it's appointed unto all men once to die. And it doesn't say it's pointed unto men to die only once. So there's two arguments there that will not uh, convince anyone that it has to exclude Moses from being in the picture in the future. Or at least a Moses-like person. And we're going to talk about their credentials in a moment. But I want to get this thought over to you. You see what I'm talking about? It's not appointed unto all men... To die. Wants to die. Because when Jesus comes, we're not going to die. We're the, the living believers at Christ's coming will be taken up. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 11. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth or is living and believing in me shall what? Never die. He's going to be taken up. Changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So it's not appointed unto all men once to die. It's appointed unto men once to die. It's the general way that people go out of this life. And again, that other argument. It's not appointed unto to men to die only once. Why? Because we've seen that, uh, well, in the days of Jesus. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus sat at the table many were converted because they believed in Lazarus and saw him living after Christ raised him from the dead. He'd been dead four days already. And we believe that he lived a normal life and that at some point in time he had to die because he was still a man. I don't believe that he's still living, do you? I don't believe the Bible even indicates that. So what we're saying is, that to take that scripture to exclude Moses from being one just because he died. And here's another argument. On the Mount of Transfiguration, there appeared with Jesus who? Moses and Elijah. Right? And they. And it's, okay, let me give you. Matthew 17, you have the record of it, just where we've been studying. And also Luke 9, Luke chapter 9, and Mark chapter 9. Okay, listen carefully. In Luke's gospel, it says, these two, Moses and Elijah, spake of his decease, or Christ's death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And Peter tells us, look in Second Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that that uh, manifestation on the Mount of Transfiguration was a... Preview of Christ's coming in power and great glory. In 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me read this to you. Now, keep in mind, we have, the, we have in view what happened during Christ's lifetime. Uh, Peter, James, and John were taken up with Jesus on a high mountain apart. One gospel says to pray. And He was transfigured before uh, them. And His face did shine as the sun, and His raiment was white as the light. And Luke's Gospel says that Moses there appeared with him Moses and Elijah, so does Matthew. But Luke's Gospel says they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now then, Peter says that experience, Peter, James, and John were there with Jesus. The three special uh, people close to Jesus. Now look carefully. It says in the book of 2 Peter, Peter rehearses this and calls to remembrance this uh, experience. And here's what he has to say about it verse 16 Second Peter chapter 1 verse 16 for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you now listen the power and coming of our lord Jesus Christ he says when we made known the power and coming of Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received from god the father honor and glory When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. What? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now what did God say on that Mount of Transfiguration? It says that the voice from heaven, a bright cloud overshadowed them. The voice from heaven uh, uh, said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's exactly what Peter is rehearsing to us in his epistle. And he says, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. There's no doubt but what Peter is referring to that incident. And there's no doubt but what he interprets that to be, we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he is saying also the, uh, the whole experience has to do with the power and coming of Christ. And we have already pointed out, in every case, it speaks of Moses and Elijah being with Jesus. And if that was a preview of Christ's coming, then I don't believe that you could, in any way, eliminate these two witnesses that we're talking about, uh, eliminate Moses from being one of them, or at least in type one of them. Now then, if you turn back to Revelation quickly, I guess our time's about gone, but. I want you to notice their credentials. In verse 6, these have power. You have chapter 11, verse 6. These two witnesses have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Who did that? Elijah. And what are the days of, what are the days of their prophecy? Three and a half years? Isn't that just kind of the same thing that Elijah did? Shut up heaven that it rains.